This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello and welcome to the Red Box podcast from The Times. I'm Matt Chorley. Here's an interesting fact to start this week. London has twice as many billionaires as New York. Times columnist Giles Whittell will try to explain why. As the Labour Party ties itself in knots about exactly when Hitler went bad, Times columnist Phil Collins examines the conspiracy theorists who now run the party. We'll also find time for the hugely popular EU referendum sweepstake. But first, ahead of Super Thursday's bumper crop of elections, Times Deputy Editor Emma Tucker asks why one contest has been so disappointing. This week, London chooses a new mayor, and the post-Boris world is destined to be less colourful. First, Ken Livingstone and then Boris Johnson took a role with limited powers and turned it into one of the biggest jobs in British politics. Sadiq Khan might be on course to beat Zach Goldsmith to become London's first Muslim mayor, but neither have come close to filling their predecessors' shoes. The the contest for the mayoralty went from everybody ignoring it up until Ken Livingstone joined in as the former London mayor had started talking about uh, Hitler and exactly whether or not he was always anti-Semitic. Uh, we'll come on to that later with Phil, but just to, just explain what you think the problem is with the with the contest as it's played out. Well, I think part of the problem is that um, the candidates all seem to, they, they don't seem to be vast areas of difference. So if, you know, we, in a role that has limited powers anyway, I think perhaps uh, the, when it started out, the idea of the London mayor attracted these big personalities. So, you know, Ken Livingston, whatever you think of him, he was a personality. Boris, you know, full of jokes and bonhomie and a colourful life. Uh, and so people were sort of, in a sense, moving away from, from, from their parties and voting for personalities. In this contest, I think what, what's happened is that the, the, lead, the candidates are very much just products of their parties and haven't really lent a huge amount of sort of charisma. I mean, we had a hustings here last week uh, at the Times and it was a sort of soup of consensus. It was very hard to get them to it disagree was, on when anything. When even the UKIP candidate was coming <laughs> out as an enthusiast for cycling. Yes, exactly. Particularly on the issue of transport, which is one of the few areas where they have some power. Uh, it really was difficult to find a chink between any of the candidates on, on the big issues facing London transport. And then all of that would be fine if Sadiq and Zach were big personalities, but nobody would argue that they are. No, I think they're each they're each sort of interesting politicians, but they don't set the world on fire. They don't, uh, you know, there's no sort of, you know, high flown rhetoric or sort of colourful lives. I mean, you know, I think it would be interesting for London to have a Muslim mayor. I do think that's interesting. You know, 
the fact that it's Sadiq Khan is, you know, in a way neither here nor there. It would be an interesting thing for London to have a Muslim mayor, particularly at this time with all the sort of stresses and strains that are going on uh, between uh, different religions in the world. So I think in that sense it's interesting, but uh, the two main candidates are not that interesting. <laughs> Do you agree, Phil? I do, largely. I think it Oh, well, let's have... not have a soup of consensus here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think, let me say how it might have been more interesting. I think it would have been more interesting if Tessa Jowell had won the Labour nomination because then I think the you'd have had a really quite hardcore new Labour mayoralty, which would have been a sort of laboratory for what the Labour Party might look like uh, with Jeremy Corbyn being the, the national leader. It's going to be very interesting, the relationship that Sadiq Khan has to... Jeremy Corbyn. I mean, Sadiq Khan was one of those MPs who nominated Jeremy Corbyn for the leadership but didn't vote for him and doesn't really support him and has tried to distance himself from Corbyn during the election quite successfully too. He's done he's run quite a good campaign, I think, Sadiq Khan. And so the extent to which he tries to distance himself from Corbyn and Macdonald when he is mayor will be quite interesting. And that will come about on his championing of the City of London which as Mayor of London you have to do. One of the jobs you've got as Mayor of London is to be the champion for the city. You've got to be the voice of the city. And Boris did that quite well. It's not power as such, but it's still an important job that you do. And Sadiq Khan's not the most natural person to go out um, battling for British business, but he's made a decent fist of saying so. So it's going to be interesting. The, the internal Labour Party politics will be interesting in due course. And Giles, what do you think has been wrong with the, the ZAC campaign? I think he has a problem, uh, an, an image problem in the same way that Cameron has and uh, Boris hasn't in that he's a toff and he can't disguise it and nor can he make a virtue of it. Uh, also, I want to channel a colleague who says he's not a shopping candidate and that uh, his uh, his green anti-shopping plastic bags instinct is getting in the way of London's destiny as a global uh, consumerist hub. But I just separate from Zach's candidacy, I think one reason why the whole campaign has not caught the nation's attention, and by the way, the world's attention, a a global city's mayoral election should be an international story. We always report on, you know, the race for the New York mayoralty or the Chicago mayoralty, is that there isn't anything, a burning piece of business for this city. And it's been said that Boris hasn't done much compared with um, with Ken. You know, it's even been said that the Boris bikes were Ken's idea and this kind of thing. Uh, but the fact that after two terms there isn't a glaring omission from his watch is actually in itself a substantial achievement, and that's part of the reason that neither candidate has anything to get his teeth into. But well, I think they could have built a case that there is a burning piece of what did you call it a burn, business burning piece of, piece of business which is housing yeah housing, you know, housing it is, should be huge you know housing could have been made much more of by the candidates and it would have had an enormous appeal perhaps not on a global stage but certainly within within London there are plenty of people and not just people at the bottom end of the income scale who genuinely don't know how they're ever going to you know find a home to live in I, I agree with that I think housing could have been bigger but one of the big differences in this country uh, with America of course is the range of powers that the mayor mm. has I mean the, these this is a smaller position than the mayor of New York or the mayor of Chicago the other big change links to what you're going to come on to talk to in a moment Giles which is London may have more billionaires than New York but our business community is not particularly public 
uh, there's not much uh, tradition of going from business into public service. The great mayor of New York in recent years was Mike Bloomberg. Who's the comparable figure? Who would be the big figure to stand for London mayor? It's hard to think of anybody. So it's a party political fiefdom in London in a way is isn't quite in New York. And uh, Alan Sugar told the Times this week that he he'd been approached about uh, running for the London mayoralty, and he, you know, obviously it's much easier just to slag off people who are standing. But he basically just said he wouldn't because of the conflicts of interest. And and until until some until that becomes a natural progression for someone to make, I think somebody who's successful in the media, successful in business, why would you give all that up to go and run a campaign which you might not win? And then you, you know, and then you were loser. You know, this seems to be too much to lose for a successful business. It's a good question because I mean, one, some of the names that you hear, Alan Sugar's one. The other one is Eddie Izzard. Well, you know, that would enliven a campaign. But I don't know for the, for what you're saying whether whether anyone like him would ever really want to do it. And it goes back to the debate we've had a couple of times on the podcast about celebrities or well-known people joining him with the EU referendum campaign. If you're if you're in the business of doing something else, selling tickets or people watching your TV shows or doing business with you, do you want to alienate half the country or half of the city by suddenly becoming political? There's not that tra- tradition yeah. of business it, being political. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily follow that you're going to be any good at being the mayor. Mm. Yeah. I mean, there is at least some sort of a line you can draw between being a chief executive of a business you've built up yourself to having executive authority over housing and transport etc there's not much of a straight line between being a stand-up comic and well maybe that maybe there is in Boris's and, marathon case. Uh, and a marathon runner and, and, and doing shows in french and being mayor of london uh, which is not to say i don't think Azard wouldn't be marvelous but it doesn't necessarily follow and yes. so that the call for bigger figures we have to be quite careful what we wish for although the flip side is what exactly the the experiences that Sadiq Khan or Zach Goldsmith brings to that either. Mm. You know, Sadiq Khan is trading on the fact he was a middle-ranking minister at the Department for Transport, I think, is his main... Don't forget his dad's a bus and driver. And his dad was a bus driver, which is now... Really? It's gone from being a cliché to a thing he makes a joke about, and now even the joke is yeah, sort yeah. of tied. The levels of cliché every time he makes That's that joke right. out is it's, amazing. It's plumbing new depths of cliché, <laughs> isn't it? Um, he'll, he'll tell us that a week is a long time in politics next. Can I just say a word about Zach Goldsmith? Because it's an intriguing question what the, the Conservatives decided to do with Zach Goldsmith. Because in a way, he's a very quirky, um, non-conservative conservative, but they've not made anything of that at all. Mm. He has just been the sort of figurehead of a, a campaign that's been pretty divisive and pretty nasty and set peoples against one another. There's not been any attempt to sell Zach Goldsmith as an interesting, unlikely kind of Tory. Yeah. which you thought might be a thing you could sell in London. Because London, bear in mind, is, is a London city at the moment, a Labour city at the moment. In the, the last general election, it voted Labour, as the country didn't. And even you go back to the last mayoral election, Ken, who by then was a completely busted candidate, only just lost to Boris Johnson. Mm. So the task facing the Conservatives at this election was always very difficult. Yeah. So it's not... To, to any great virtue of the Labour Party that they, they're likely to win. But I do think the Tories could have done more with Zach Goldsmith. I think they've slightly thrown him away. I thought I always thought it was quite radical that they put um, a mayoral candidate who was pro-leaving the EU to run to be mayor of a profoundly pro-EU city, yeah. given its population, but also given the city of London and its tendency to sort of, well, it's more of a Labour city. It was a, a, an interesting one, that, and not much. You know, he didn't seem to get challenged on that very much. Well, I think it, it seemed to become established quite quickly that it wasn't going to win, so nobody's sort of asked him any difficult questions. <laughs> that seems to be what's happened. Uh, now, uh, Charles, leaving us completely open to the criticism of being too London-centric, 
Uh, you also want to talk about London. Bigger than that, isn't it? It's Go on. A, it's about who we are. Let's talk about billionaires. London has twice as many as New York, according to the latest issue of the Sunday Times Rich List. Why? In my view, because billionaires can go anywhere and they know we're not serious about asking where their money came from, whereas New York is. So, John, is having lots of billionaires good for London? Uh, Yes, in the uh, narrow sense that they bring investment uh, and for those who are uh, lucky enough to own homes, they drive up uh, the top end of the property market, which sucks in money at the bottom end and uh, contributes to the general money magnet status uh, of the city. I hear a sharp intake of breath on my right. <laughs> I think this is because on my right... I think you hear some... two sharp intakes of breath. It's <laughs> <laughs> a question of who's going to intake their breath first. My, my broader point is is that we should be somewhat ashamed or at least at least questioning ourselves. I, I've, I've got a bit of a joke. Can I... I oh, very dear. seldom do this. I'll try and be Here very... Here we go. Very Brace quick. yourselves. Okay, okay. Knock, knock. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The pre-Barara, okay, is the U.S. Attorney, Federal Prosecutor of the Southern District of Manhattan. That's a cracker, Manhattan. this one. <laughs> right, right. Uh, and he... you, you buy very strange crackers. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> well, he went into a bar. <laughs> so he is the uh, embodiment of the hard-charging American prosecutor who gets tough with white-collar crime in, in, in New York. Lots and lots of charges brought against dodgy bankers. In fact, remarkably few prosecutions, but people aren't blaming him on that. He's going after corruption. He's going after sanctions violators, that kind of thing. Cut to the, this rich list, all right, in, in the, that shows that London has many more billionaires. Is London twice as dynamic uh, a business centre as, as New York? No, it's just twice as dazzled by uh, exorbitant wealth. We have non-dom status still exists. We have our network of tax havens, uh, which we built. Let's let's be honest about that. And we have our hopeless white-collar crime enforcement. Can you name the uh, head of the uh, NCA? Well, we're getting there. We're getting there. Yes, <laughs> sir. yes we have no Barara. Oh, oh, it was, oh, oh, was definitely oh, worth it. Oh dear. Oh my word. Bring back Eddie Izzard. Was that a joke you made up? Yeah. Can we? Can we? Um, we'll try edit, and edit. Try and edit all of that out. <laughs> but that, no, but book ended between the beginning and end of a joke was a very thought-provoking thesis it was. about why we. Uh, it was. Yeah. You, so you, you could say the joke wasn't strictly necessary. <laughs> oh, but <laughs> we're not added to it. Definitely. So, so we're, Phil, we're, come on, let's I concentrate can't with that. <laughs> Do you think it's good that, that, that London's got twice as many uh, billionaires in New York? Well, I appreciate the point about money flowing in. I don't want, wouldn't want to stop it, but there are obvious detrimental consequences from it. Chief of which is the thing we we're talking about with respect to the mayoral thing, which is housing. The housing market in London is horribly dysfunctional because a lot of that money. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Flows in into property, and that is inflating London property prices, such that we've got a serious problem about people who need to work in London because they're working in public services, in nurses, for example, who cannot afford to live in London. So that gives you a corresponding transport problem. So the whole of the inbox of the Mayor of London is basically being exacerbated by the money which is flowing into London. So there are serious downsides with it. And the I've got real reservations about simply allowing property to be bought kind of off plan by people who never are never going to live in it. They're just investment properties for the high end. There are real detrimental consequences to it. So it worries me a bit, actually. And I mean, is it a problem that if London, London is seen as somewhere to come, if you've got loads of money, because you're not going to be chased in the same way they might in New York? Well, it's always said, isn't it, that that people with a lot of money come here because they know we have, you know, sound institutions, uh, that their money will be protected, that that people won't start sort of rogue um, cases against them. But I, I mean, I, I sometimes ask myself, well, how would it feel if they all left? And I'm not sure we would particularly want them all to leave because although there are problems associated with having a lot of billionaires in London, they do bring a sort of dynamism and uh, sort of a lot of money into the city. Whether we should be stricter about what they're doing, I think certainly the feeling out there is that they are given a free ride and that not enough scrutiny is given to the kind of money that comes in. Uh, I don't think the Panama Papers case helped much. I think I think the feeling is that they are not scrutinised enough and possibly uh, we could be a bit more robust a la New York about who we let in and, and how we let them operate. And there is this sense, Giles, of, of if you live outside London, it's just another world in terms of, you know, all the billionaires with London were good for London. That's, you know, there's no sense that anyone outside London benefits from that. Uh, apart from possibly, you know, they're paying their taxes while those billionaires in London might not be. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think we have to face the reality, which is that this is a country with one mega city which whose economic impact is is national and certainly i've seen uh, diagrams of uh, um, maps of the sort of latest view of greater london as running from the wash to the seven estuary and i i don't think it is true that london is is a different world the whole of the southeast is an, is an extraordinarily prosperous part of the world uh, attention when Forbes produce their list of billionaires and the Sunday Times produce theirs, naturally focuses on, on, on a few individuals. I'm, I actually have nothing against billionaires. I do think that it's pathetic that we don't have a single white-collar crime agency that is able to bring charges against those whose wealth is actually uh, illegitimately earned. Um, I'm not going to name any names because we'll just, we'll just be sort of gunned down as we leave the building. But... Um, <laughs> Uh, at least you three of the billionaires in the, in the top 20 uh, on the Sunday Times list. It's, it's a matter of uh, public record. The origin of their fortunes is um, highly murky. There are, there are bodies and we turn a blind eye. That's the part that, that I think is, is, is shameful. It's totally inconsistent. And I, I think it's not just it feels like there's one set of rules for the ultra rich and one for the rest. There is. And David Cummins got this anti-corruption uh, summit, summit in London next week, which I'm sure will be full of big new announcements. 
which we can look forward to, even if they don't necessarily uh, uh, deliver anything. But let's let's move on for now. Uh, Phil, um, you want to talk to us about the Labour Party. Yeah, I'd be happily never talk about it again, the way it's going. The Labour Party is now controlled by conspiracy theorists. As soon as the left's flirtation with anti-Semitism is exposed, Diane Abbott says it's a media conspiracy, fueled by Blairites to undermine Jeremy Corbyn. One presumes that somewhere near the epicentre of this conspiracy, there must be a Blairite columnist writing on a Murdoch newspaper. Hang on. It's me. I am Kaiser Soze. Let me explain how I do it. Uh, the left is obsessed with conspiracy theories. There's a number of conspiracy theories which interact to produce the, the state that they've got into. Firstly, it's America. The, the hard left believe that American power is the worst and most dangerous thing threat in the world, and they believe America is controlling far more than America really is. That takes its form of imperialism, uh, of which Israel is one example, but it's also capitalism. American capitalism is controlling the world. The other conspiracy, which is upholding this, is the media conspiracy. There is this really strong belief on the British far left that media is massively important, a single controlling intelligence which controls what people think, conceals the truth, from people and puts out a version of reality which is which is false and serves a elite corrupt establishment. Then there's the final conspiracy, which is the conspiracy within the Labour Party of the Blairites. This tiny rump of people who are miraculously, despite being nowhere near the seats of power in the Labour Party, still somehow controlling it, because that's how <laughs> conspiracy theories always work, is these invisible people are somehow both terrible but incredibly clever. And it suddenly occurred to me when I put all those things together that the, in the media there must be a Blairite columnist. And I thought, it's me. The conspiracy is so clever that I am controlling it and I didn't even know. <laughs> and here is, I can reveal to all the Corbyn people listening, here is where it's done. I've got the deputy editor of the Times and the chief leader writer of the Times and they are in on it too. And I look at their faces, they're aghast. They Stop didn't know. giving it away. They, they didn't, I've seen them at their jobs. They've got no idea what they're doing. <laughs> and what they're doing is controlling the Labour Party and taking dictation from you exactly yeah. and what's I'm a palaver to go to, to just to bring down Jeremy Corbyn you, 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 you could just leave him to it you'd have thought so you'd have thought you might just get Margaret Hodge to see if she could depose him <laughs> instead um, but this morning unveiling a poster Jeremy Corbyn couldn't resist having a crack at yeah. the media he did it again he said so um, that, that quite honestly it is time that many in the golden circle of the media establishment actually got out a bit and listened to what people are saying. Yeah, well, that's precisely why I think Jeremy Corbyn should leave, because I, I have listened to what people <laughs> okay. are saying. But, it, but it's very interesting that in however many years he hasn't updated his views, uh, given that we now have, you know, anyone who doesn't want to read the MSM is welcome to look at Facebook, Twitter. It, it's got social media now. Politicians can go right over our heads if they choose to. But nevertheless, Corbyn and his cronies, they have not updated this incredibly outdated view that somehow, you know, the various press barons are controlling thought in our country. But if anything, I think social media's done the opposite. It's reinforced because, you know, Corbyn says something bland on Twitter and it gets 5,000 retweets. Well, this just goes to show <laughs> that out there in the real world, people love all this stuff. It, it does. That's The conspiracy theory, of course, always closes up and it's a perfect excuse for why things never work. Because if and when Corbyn fails to break through and become prime minister, it won't. It can't be because he's not very good. It will always mm. be because the conspiracy has been successful uh, in preventing him. And so it's a perfect get-out clause. It's a, a beautifully circular piece of thinking. And in a way, there's no arguing with it. 
I mean, how do you, it's very difficult to disprove. It also it has history, doesn't it? Because they said the same thing after Kinnock didn't win in the early nineties. It was oh, it was a conspiracy by the by the mainstream media. Although we weren't called that then. Um, so I guess you know this is a theory that will you know has got a long, deep rooted history in the Labour Party. It, it has, and there, there are people who are not by no means conspiracy theorists, but who also th- have a have a much more muted version of this, which is they think the hostile press is very important and is always against the Labour Party. So there is a there is a sensible version of this argument that I'm mocking as well. Uh, I don't I don't myself even believe the sensible version. I think newspapers are, uh, are commercial entities that at least as much follow their readers and try and give their readers what readers want to read than they are that simply read. I, it would be, let's put it the other way around, it would be incredibly arrogant if as a columnist or as a newspaper person you said, I think our readers think nothing and we're now about to tell them what to think and tomorrow they're going to think it. It would be preposterous because readers of all newspapers come with brains, intelligence, thoughts, lives. And so the idea that newspapers simply give people a view and they're gullible enough to, to swallow it is, of course, nonsense. But you have to believe that in order to believe the conspiracy. Ultimately, the left patronises people because mm-hmm. it thinks that they are so pliable that just writing a column in the newspaper can, can condition people to think that Jeremy Corbyn isn't very good. They never stop to think that maybe the starting point of my analysis is that Jeremy Corbyn isn't very good. I'm sure that's all true. It is true. And that's enough from you, Giles. <laughs> <laughs> we do spend a lot of time mocking him and not much asking about his constituency because he does have one. Uh, you look at the polls, if there was an election tomorrow, general election, if people voted the way they say they're, go- they're going to vote, he'd um, net a bigger share of the national vote than Cameron would. Now, it's been pointed out to me that at the comparable stage in Blair's ascendancy when he was leader of the party but not of the country, he was... much further ahead of the incumbent than than Corbyn is now. But they're not all nutters, and just bring it slightly back to where we were before, a lot of them are young professionals, are they not, trying to get a job, they've got that, trying to find somewhere to live, they haven't got that, thinking there's something badly wrong, I much prefer the look of Corbyn than I do the toff. Yeah, I'm not saying that everyone who would vote Labour or everyone who supports Jeremy Corbyn is is prone to this. So this is the very much the people around him mm. that are hard yeah. supporters. Um, I think this is Jeremy Corbyn's honeymoon period. I think this is as good as it gets. I think he's having a wonderful time at the moment in the polls. At the weekend, Labour were eight points behind the Tories. I think that is remarkably generous. The idea that Labour would poll 30% under Jeremy Corbyn is a fantasy. Well, we're gonna, be, we'll, we'll find out on, on Super Duper Thursday. The first, I mean, this is the first time that Corbyn mania has come crashing up against real uh, a real electoral test see what happens in scotland see what happens in wales the local council election scotland's a very interesting test because one of the things that was said in favor of corbyn at the time of his election was that labor needed to be more left-wing in scotland than it had been hitherto and that because scotland's left-wing country and that will help labor in scotland it doesn't seem appears though that's true at all it looks as though labor might even come third behind the conservatives well, we'll we'll cover uh, everything that happens in the elections on Thursday in next week's podcast. But we can't let you go without playing the EU referendum sweepstake. We're now barely fifty days to go. The polls say it's a dead heat. Uh, not one bookie gives Leave better odds than Remain. Giles, what do you think is going on? Uh, I think the bookies are calculating that the don't knows will break for Remain, and I think they're probably right because if you're a don't know, you're either a don't care who will end up voting for the status quo if you vote at all, or you're waiting for more information and the weight of empirical evidence suggests we'll be worse off if we leave. That The big question that that leaves unanswered is how many of the don't knows will vote.
And so um, I'm now just about to ask you to predict the outcome of the referendum. What share of the vote do you think Remain is going to get? You're allowed up to two decimal places. 52.25. 52.25. Now, Emma, you did this the last time you were on, about a month ago. You said 55% then. I are did. You, are you sticking to that? Well, I said 55, and I was astonished that my uh, two fellow podcasters, Matthew Paris and Daniel Funkenstein, both gave much higher percentage for Remain. But that was about a month ago. I predicted 55%. I'm going to lower my prediction. I still think Remain will, will edge it, but I don't think by much... Am I allowed to have the same as Giles? No. All right. No, because I want to win. (laughs) 53%. 53%. And Phil? Uh, I agree very much with the analysis. I do think turnout will be the crucial factor, and I think there'll be just enough people bother for Remain to win, but I don't think it'll be that big, so I'm going to say (laughs) 53.47. Fabulous. We like people who use their uh, decimal places. Um, Now, if you're listening to this and thinking, uh, I can do a better job of punditry than that, now is your chance. You can pick up your phone and tweet your prediction for Remain, uh, for what you think Remain will get. Tweet us at TimesRedBox using the hashtag RedBoxSweepstake or email redbox at thetimes.co.uk. You can use the same email address to send us any questions for our Ask the Experts podcast next week. Remember, you can subscribe to the podcast via iTunes or on your Android device. And every morning I get up and separate the political week from the chaff for my political email briefing. You can sign up for that at thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox forward slash sign up. But for now, from Emma, Giles, Phil and me, it's goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.